Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for June 22nd, 2016. The Show Me the Money Edition. I'm Jamel Bowie. I'm Slate's chief political correspondent sitting in for David Plotz. I'm joined by the talented Adam Davidson of The New York Times and the podcast Surprisingly Awesome. Hello, Adam. Hey, Jamel. And also with us and also in D.C., although not in the Slate studios, is the equally talented Rachel Martin of NPR. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Jamel. Hello, Adam. Hey, Rachel. On this week's GapFest, Donald Trump's campaign is running on empty with hardly any cash in the bank. Why isn't he self-funding if he is a billionaire? Is he actually a billionaire? What is going on in the Trump effort? And today as well, Britain votes on exit from the European Union, all the while us Americans are arguing over walls and borders and immigration restrictions and Muslims. Is this something broader? Is this a greater right-wing ascendancy? What's going on? And Hillary Clinton is looking for a vice president. Who is in contention? Who should be in contention? How should she choose? We will give you our almost baseless speculation. (laughs) After all of that, we'll have cocktail chatter. And on Slate Plus, we'll talk gun control. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, uh, and what are you doing, people? You can join at slate.com slash GabFest Plus. I also want to remind listeners that the GapFest has an upcoming live show, July 13th in Washington, D.C.'s Warner Theater. To find out more, visit slate.com slash live. Come to the show, see the actual host. All right, let's get this started, guys. On Monday, FEC reports dropped, the Federal Election Commission's reports, and we reporters got a glimpse of the inner workings of the Trump campaign and specifically the amount of money they were raising. And the shocking thing is that they were raising almost no money. Trump, as of Monday, has about $1.3 million in the bank. Uh, For comparison's sake, I'm pretty sure MC Hammer was richer than him in 1993. (laughs) The Trump campaign is being outraised by the Clinton campaign by about 40 or 50 million dollars. Uh, it's being outspent in advertising. It's being outorganized with people on the ground. And this all raises a question. If Trump is as wealthy as he says, why isn't he putting more of his own money into his campaign? What is going on? Uh, so, Adam, uh, I was going to ask you first, uh, what what do you think is going on? Do you think this we have grounds at this point to say that maybe Trump is exaggerating his wealth? I think we might have a few. Yeah, no, we. I mean, we we know for sure he's exaggerating his wealth because he has said on numerous occasions that he exaggerates his wealth, and the number he gives changes quite frequently. So, um, if the highest number he's ever given is ten billion dollars, we know with great certainty he doesn't. He is not worth ten billion dollars. Um, the interesting question. There's two major questions I would say uh, as far as his wealth. One is, is he worth more than a billion? 
And look, we've had lots of presidents who are not worth more than a billion. I would guess all of them have not been worth more than a billion. That, the, the billion dollars is not a threshold for presidentialness. I, I feel but like what though, it, I read somewhere that if you adjusted George Washington's uh, holdings for in today's numbers, he might he might he's very wealthy. He might be approaching. Uh, a billion. Although George Washington is a perfect example of why we are so fascinated by Trump's wealth. It's possible to be worth, say, a billion dollars in property and mm. be so illiquid, meaning so little access to ready cash, that you are effectively broke. And that seems to be the case with Trump. But broke, Adam, seems like a really extreme word. I mean, broke? He's not broke. Yeah, I'm well, not sure he's uh he's he's hurting for like you know pennies to to pay his uh the meter for his car or something. I mean, unless the the sole metric is 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 cash is is that the better way to measure someone's actual wealth is liquidity. So I would say broke in my mind when I'm using it right now is having the having ready access to the cash to run your day to day concerns. You know, hmm. if Trump decided. Last November, hey, I want to live in a two-bedroom house in uh, Westchester and uh, just pay for it with my current cash. He would not be broke. He could live much better than I could or you could and and not be broke. But he has made a decision to run for president. He's claiming to have the ready cash to fund that campaign to the tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars. And when we see his actions, he doesn't seem to be capable of raising more than, of of himself contributing more than single-digit millions. And so I would say he is broke. He doesn't have access to the ready cash to cover what he wants to do on a day-to-day basis. I'd also say that is a trend throughout his career. We've seen that many, many times. He's, you know, he shockingly lost money owning Atlantic City casinos at a time when the other Atlantic City casinos did very, very well. And so it, it this deeply gets to the core of um, Trump's judgment as a business person. You mentioned George Washington. He had terrible judgment as a business person. He was constantly cash poor, constantly broke, and it forced him to make some very questionable decisions. Although I still think George Washington was a phenomenal president, and I'd, I'd take him <laughs> For the over Trump. You heard but, it here, George Washington, <laughs> phenomenal president. Yeah. The point here is if Trump's calling card is his business acumen, and if he doesn't have ready cash to the tunes of at least double-digit million dollars, $10 million, $50 million, $40 million, if he's really scrounging for single-digit millions, and that is what it seems to be right now, that seems huh. to be all the evidence, then that is a wildly unsuccessful business person, if he does happen to have more than a billion dollars in real estate assets and other assets, that all that does is tell you just how bad he is. Because if if you have billions of dollars in assets, but you don't have access to $10 million in ready cash, you are playing some really funny games with your finances and really living way close to the edge in, um, in a very dangerous way. So I would say um, in this case, b- barring him writing a check, right away for 100 million, 200 million, 300 million for his campaign. I think we can comfortably use the word broke to describe him. But isn't this, I mean, this is way more your world than mine, Adam, but in in the world of business, don't people like to talk about just being highly leveraged? You just you just move money around and you leverage debt against other debt and that's apparently how one becomes a billionaire. That that is a thing people do, you know. But but you 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 want, you know. We just went through a financial crisis that was rooted in 
the major banks, the major governments, the major many, many citizens being highly leveraged. So the trick with high leverage, meaning for every dollar you invest, you can make $10 or $100 or $1,000 because you've borrowed against it to invest, is you have to really watch for the downsides. I would say that if you look at what everyone would recognize as highly successful business people or highly successful businesses, you would not say, oh boy, those are the most leveraged. That is not a marker of of good business acumen. And then I would also say if he went into this, he chose this life. Like I said, you know, how broke you are determined is determined by your choices in the world, your financial choices in the world. And he went into this presidential campaign. Like I said, he's definitely richer than me. There's no question. He's almost certainly worth $100 million, $200 million if he liquidated all his assets. There's a very real chance he's worth over a billion dollars if he did liquidate all his assets. But the very fact that he doesn't have immediate access to those liquid assets tells me he can't run for president effectively. It also tells me he can't manage a downturn in the economy effectively. He can't jump on sudden opportunities. I mean, you look at Warren Buffett, for example, a true billionaire, a truly great businessman. He always has the ready act cash to jump on great opportunities, to to weather years of economic downturn. So Trump, what we're seeing here is a very, we're seeing exactly the man we see on TV. We're seeing a haphazard, poor decision-making, poor assessment of risk-making mind that, that just is not capable of doing the basic financial work of playing in the leagues he's trying to play in. So I want to get to the politics of this now that we've established that Trump is in fact very broke. Um, what what I found interesting is that, it, you know, of the things that caused Republican elites uh, to be very nervous about Trump as a nominee, the attacks on the uh, Judge Curiel, who's uh, trying Trump's Trump University case, the calls for, you know, uh, the wall for a ban on Muslim immigration, all these things sort of shook people up, but they were able to look past them. Paul Ryan, for instance, is able to look past them. But the revelation that Trump essentially has no money in his campaign fund, that kind of reinvigorated talks of dumping him at the convention. And so, Rachel, I just want to ask your thoughts on this. Like, what what does that say about the Republican Party that the bigotry they can kind of look past, but like he has to have some money to run this thing or we're going to we're going to look for someone else. Well, yeah, because at the, at the end of the day, it means he he just doesn't have the cash, the infrastructure, the staff necessary to get across the finish line. You can wake up every day and witness another provocative thing that he said and then try to manage that through, you know, aggressive communication strategy. But this is just the nuts and bolts of winning. And if you don't have that in place, then you're in real trouble. And then you start casting about thinking about, you know, white knight options. I mean, what was really interesting to me in all this from a political point of view was how Trump talked about it, right? Hillary Clinton came out and and made this speech and started attacking him on his finances and financial judgment and criticizing this whole being leveraged to the hilt thing. And he came out in tweets and subsequent interviews saying, yeah, I'm the king of debt. That's my whole thing. I move debt around. I make money. That's how I was really successful in business. I'm not going to do that with the U.S. government. So what's interesting to me about that is that he clearly sees a distinction between the experience in business and the experience of governing. So he understands that difference, but he he plays to both sides when it's convenient. On the other hand, he'll say, 
the only thing America needs right now is someone with a business sensibility. I'm, I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to run this country like a business. So he's he is yet again full of contradictions. And and if he's not going to use his business acumen as president, if he's not, if he's saying in, in one sentence, "I'm the king of debt. Debt is how I am successful," but I'm not going to use that tool as president, then what what tools are he is he going to use? I mean, his only sales pitch is, "I'm a successful businessman," and if he's saying the way I'm a successful businessman is I am the king of debt. Others would say reckless with debt. It, it makes no sense. What, it, what is the case that he's making? This, this weekend, I had horrible tooth agony. This is going somewhere. Um, I had like a cracked tooth, and, um, and I had to go get an emergency root canal. Oh, and no. I called my dad and was telling him about it. And my dad said, oh, call your cousin. Call your cousin. And my cousin is the one guy in my family who's really rich. He's been a very successful businessman. <laughs> and I was saying to my dad, like, he's an accountant. He doesn't know anything about <laughs> dentistry. And my dad's like, yeah, but he's really good at all that stuff. And it just made me think of Trump, this idea that he's our, for at least some population in America, he's our rich uncle. He's, he's money's mysterious, money's scary. There's some set of skills that we don't really understand. And those people know how to operate in that world. And so I'm just going to call my rich uncle. And, and if that is a significant part of his appeal, this estimating his wealth is so important. Mm. There is a very real chance, based on the data we have, that he inherited something close to $200 million, and he is now worth less than $200 million. We don't know. It might not be that. It might be that he inherited $1 million and he's worth $1.5 billion. That's possible, too. But there is a decent chance that this is not a businessman. This is a wealthy hobbyist. Right. This is someone who has consistently lost money over the course of his career, and his hobby is projecting his deranged psychosis on the American people. And that is important. I mean, that that speaks to his very credibility. If we found out that Hillary Clinton never actually went to the Secretary of State's office, never indulged <laughs> in never Secretary, Secretary of State, of State activity, State. yeah, that, that would be an important thing to know. Why is there no smoking gun? I mean, why hasn't there been the the interview or the financial document revelation that can clarify this in a way that resonates with voters. I think there, Trump has been amazingly uh, opaque about this for his entire career. Um, he he's not probably not going to release his tax returns as a candidate. Uh, he it's clear that he uses all kinds of accounting tricks to sort of hide his actual you know net income. He's sort of organized his life to kind of obscure that fact of his background. And so I don't think we'll ever get a clear answer. I do think that if this sort of lack of fundraising, if this if this lack of funds for a campaign persists, that will basically stand in as a proxy for all of this. Um, and, you know, it's worth saying that if Trump cannot muster the money to run toe to toe with what is likely to be, you know, one point five billion dollar Democratic campaign, that, in addition to being a fascinating political science experiment, it bodes very poorly for the Republican Party's chances of even holding on to their congressional seats. Um, without they have to funnel campaign. money right. to him instead of funneling it to Senate and congressional campaigns. Right. Right. Uh, and I, I will say there are two smoking guns. I think there are two smoking guns that are really hard to overlook. So one is he did have this lawsuit against Tim O'Brien, the journalist who wrote that he's worth around $250 million. And Trump said, no, I'm not. I'm worth billions. And he lost, Trump lost that lawsuit. 
In Discovery, Tim O'Brien saw his tax returns and says he's not allowed to say what they said, but he's definitely worth a lot less than he says. So that, to me, is very compelling. The other thing is, right now, he has $1.3 million in the bank. If if we are talking about this now, if the entire nation is talking about this now, and if he had ready cash, if he had $100 million and could write a check and send it to us, then we would not be talking about this right now. He would resolve it. So it, it, it's a compelling case. I think Talking Points memo has been pretty fabulous. They're, like If 538 was the go-to 2012 website, for me, Talking Points memo has been the go-to one, although they were very wrong on Brexit today, but that I found very interesting. I, I remember in the middle of the Ebola virus scare, I remember Paul Allen just wrote a check for $100 million. He, he heard about it. It was upsetting. He wrote a check for $100 million. That's something a bunch of people can do. I mean, you know, several hundred people in America can write a check for $100 million on the spur of a moment. Those are very wealthy people. I'm not saying they should all be president, but if you say you're one of those people and you can't do that, then you have, you're not one of those people. Let's let that be the final word on this. Trump may not be one of those people. This episode of The GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Today, the United Kingdom votes on whether it wants to remain part of the European Union, um, whether it will uh, commence a Brexit. I think I'm using that portmanteau right from the European Union. We're not going to talk about the results of that vote in part because they haven't fully come in yet. Voting just recently began and we'll have to wait uh, until after we've done recording to see what actually happens. But we mention that because it is interestingly congruent with lots of things happening in the Western world. Here in the United States, for example, we have a presidential candidate who wants to raise a wall on our southern border, who wants to restrict Muslim immigration or Muslim entry into the United States, um, who is sort of stirring up xenophobic and nativist attitudes, which has some you know connection to the argument happening in the UK, um, across the continent, continental Europe, you have similar kind of arguments and debates about cosmopolitanism, about immigrants, about the role of kind of the traditional – in the United States, it's white. In most of Europe, it's white working class. And so all of these things are happening altogether. We had the shooting in Orlando last week, which also ties in – the reaction to that ties into all of this. Trump gave a very uh, now infamous speech calling for you know a stricter ban on Muslims, for more surveillance of Muslims. And so – 
this raises the question of are we in a period of you know, right-wing you know, nativist ascendancy? Um, and what, what does that mean for our politics today? What does it mean for the politics, our politics in the near future? So Rachel, I wanted to start with you. Are we looking at a broader global phenomena and is this something that's going to persist uh, for the near future? I think we absolutely are in a moment of this right-wing ascendancy, and and I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. I mean, so come back in time with me. There was a book in 1996 that came out, Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, and this thing was, was totally controversial. It was xenophobic. It was nationalist. It was racist, some argued. And the thing is, a lot of his thesis has borne out over time. It has to do with how the West has responded to what has been this crazy am- amount of immigration as the result of civil wars and, and the Syrian refugee crisis in particular. I mean, just this past week, the UNHCR, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, released this report saying that right now there are 65.3 million people who are refugees, asylum seekers, or internally displaced. That was at the end of 2015. That's an increase of 5 million in a year. That means one in every 113 people on the planet is displaced in this way. That is crazy. That's way higher than World War II. We are living through a massive population shift. And the problem is that the countries where these people are fleeing to don't know how to deal with it, feel threatened. And that's some of what we are seeing fuel this entire debate about Brexit in the UK. I mean, there are all kinds of more nuanced economic arguments about the future of the EU and people who want to leave say they're not seeing the economic benefits. But, you know, if you really drill down with people, it is this this concern about a culture being displaced. And it's a referendum on multiculturalism and that experiment in Europe, which I would argue is really fraught. I mean, for generations, Europe has not been able to integrate its immigrant communities in a way that the United States has been relatively successful at. And we can talk more about why. But I think this is not going away anytime soon. And Europe is really struggling with how to manage this. And and obviously, I mean, as has been brought out in our own presidential politics, this is something that's happening on our side of, of the ocean as well. So there's a thing economists have known, I mean, for, for centuries, that broadly speaking, trade, immigration, increasing the size of the market, increasing the size of where you can sell things, where you can buy things from, that makes every region better off. And that is true. That is true today. That has always been true. But it is disproportionately true for some groups than for others. And there are groups that are net losers when you have a sudden trade shock, a sudden immigration or refugee shock. There's increasingly compelling evidence that right-wing extremism is very closely tied to increasing trade and increasing immigration. I I was talking to Gordon Hansen at UC San Diego about this the other day, and and he's done some amazing work with some other economists. There's other work we can post these papers on, on the website, tracking the same activity throughout Europe. And what you see is those regions of the U.S. or Europe 
where that have been most trade affected, meaning the largest numbers of job loss because the factories that were there or whatever have are now in another country or, or those jobs are now in another country are directly tied to increasingly voting for right-wing extremist candidates. And regions that are not trade-affected are not. Um, I would say that the impact of trade overall and the impact of immigration overall, in any given moment, it's actually fairly mild. I mean, by estimates, you know, we're about 1% richer on average in America because of immigration, including illegal immigration. We're about 1% richer on average, maybe a little less because of NAFTA. But you know, folks like us who are not in highly trade-impacted fields, we might be a bit more, 2 3 4% richer, but then there are people who would be lifetime permanently poorer. And I would say we as a country do not, and, and Europe also, we do not have an answer for them. I mean, that that is the most compelling thing I hear. I, I know Hillary Clinton's economic team fairly well, and I'm very impressed by them. They really are top-notch economists and economic policy thinkers. They don't have anything for a 55-year-old laid-off factory worker in Michigan or in northeastern Pennsylvania or whatever. They don't have anything to offer them. And so I think it's intuitively understandable that a screaming, loud, wrong answer is more compelling than a very calm, reasonable, accurate, right answer, which is your life's just going to be worse for the ne- for the rest of your life. But don't worry – these hipsters in Brooklyn are doing much better. So my my question about all of this is that like maybe standard like very mainstream economic uh, prescriptions don't have an answer for that particular worker. But it seems to me that like there has to be something we can do that may not be the most efficient move. It may not be the most optimal move, but at least it satisfies this very real um, this very real desire among a lot of Americans who. Are the losers of globalization, or I guess if we're in Europe, a lot of Europeans who are the losers of globalization, to give them something to do, right? Like it seems to me that we could at least do that, whether it's um, federally subsidized jobs, whether it's whether it's something. It, it's there's something in the realm of possibility. The problem to some to some extent is that like there's no force in American politics really pressing for that. We should just do this to do it because we're wealthy and it's a it's a it stabilizes our society in in, in important ways. Um, there's no one really pressing for that option in our politics. There, you know, unions aren't the institutional force they once were. There's no sort of successor movement to industrial democracy. So we're kind of stuck. We're in this place where we don't have the realm of the politically possible hasn't been expanded enough. And I think that even goes for someone like Bernie Sanders, who notably is not calling for guaranteed jobs for anyone who wants them, which I think would be the kind of thing you'd see out of a more labor-focused left-wing movement. But I, this is just me kind of like musing. Um, I, I'm yeah, far from But I think what's here. key is, and, and you've touched on it, is it would have to be make work. I mean, what is happening is the threshold for wages has gone up. There was a long period in the 20th century where simply being willing to go to a building reliably every day for eight hours or 12 hours and do what you're told was worth a lot. You know, there are these big factories that needed lots of people to like move stuff around, carry stuff around, just do what they're told. And you didn't need to read, you didn't need to write, you didn't need to have any kind of education. Those jobs are all but fully gone. And the ones that remain, the kind of low-end retail, even those require a high school degree, et cetera. So we, we do not 
in this country have demand for the high school-only graduates and the high school dropouts we have. And that's a big population, something like 80 million of people. That's a big, big population. So it would have to be something like welfare. It would have to be a transfer payment. We could dress it up in a way that doesn't have the stigma of welfare, but it would have to be that. There's no other option. Oh, the other option is is actually investing in higher education, and, and that's getting a lot of traction rhetorically in this election. But, you know, can you really make a, a college degree something that's affordable for people so they can graduate, so they can go out and they can get one of these jobs that don't rely on this failed manufacturing industry anymore? Absolutely. But that's really a solution for the child of the 55-year-old or the grandchild. It's not – there. We're in a transitional moment, for, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah it has to be yeah. Yeah. transitional that, that fix. That is very, very tough. And and so, I, you know, I do think there is a counterfactual universe. Like John Maynard Keynes, who basically is the economist who created the world economy that's crumbling now. I mean, Brexit is, well, I doubt many of its supporters have ever heard of John Maynard Keynes. It is basically saying, screw you, John Maynard Keynes, and the world you created. He was very insensitive to this issue. I mean, he was sensitive to a lot of issues, but... A bunch of men, and they were pretty much men, sat around in 1946 and created the global economy. And John Maynard Keynes and some others really led that effort. And they didn't care about this issue because they felt like, you know, the kind of rising tide lifts all boats. This is not going to be a deep issue. Um, so we didn't embed in our economy. There's, it, You can imagine a counterfactual where we recognize this issue as a potential one and embedded training and education in, in a deeper way, embedded apprenticeship programs. You know, the, the Germans probably did a better job, although they are deeply struggling too for the same exact reasons. So we need to build those institutions. But if, if you look at the development of unions, the development of the minimum wage, the development of public education, it, these things take decades, generations. They don't, they don't typically happen on, on a dime. Rachel, I want to give you the last thought on this topic. Oh, I just have a bigger thought about the EU. That's where we started. And I think it's I think it's in a precarious state. I think it doesn't matter what happens with the Brexit vote. The the stink of it, if you will, is going to linger a while. And you look at Greece and just the financials of it, it's becoming more and more tenuous. But also, you know, there's a real sadness among some people I've spoken with, especially in Germany. I was in Germany in the fall um, covering the whole migrant crisis and talking to lawmakers about the temporary shutdown of the Schengen Agreement. So the Schengen Agreement set up in 85 created the open borders in Europe. And that's something Europeans hold very dear, this idea of free mobility around the European Union. And for a while, during the height of the migrant crisis, the borders were closed. And that was a really big symbolic hit to Europeans and Germans in particular, who, because of their place in history, really like to think of themselves as this very open, tolerant society, even though, you know, talk to Turks who've lived there for generations and they'll tell you otherwise. But I think the EU and its future is something we're going to be looking at for years to come. Th these kinds of conversations are not over. All right. Hillary Clinton is the presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party, and we're a couple weeks, about a month, uh, and some change away from the Democratic convention in Philadelphia when she will unveil her running mate for the fall. And this week in particular, there's been a lot of chatter about the people who are in the running, who are being vetted. There's Virginia Senator Tim Kaine. There's head of housing and urban development, uh, Julian Castro. 
there's Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, and there's a smattering of other people too who are who are raised in this conversation. I have a lot of thoughts about this because this is like my job. <laughs> this is um, your jam. Yeah. <laughs> this is totally your jam, the reap stakes. But I wanted to hear uh, what y'all thought first. Who who would you pick uh, for a Clinton vice president? Who do you think she needs to pick? What do you think she needs to be looking for um, in a running mate going forward? From what I've read, there's like this liberal fantasy of a Clinton-Warren ticket. I mean, you tell me, but it seems like these two humans don't really dig each other that much. And I don't understand why Elizabeth Warren would want to be Hillary Clinton's vice president. I mean, frankly, I don't understand why anyone would, because there's this other guy named Bill Clinton, who I imagine is not just going to be like bumbling around the halls. He's going to have something to say in a potential Clinton, Hillary Clinton administration. So I don't know who you pick. I mean, Tim Kaine seems to be at the top of all the lists. He's a white guy. I understand that's potentially a demographic she she needs to kind of wrestle with and win more of. I don't know, maybe Tim Kaine? I way prefer talking about Brexit and economic <laughs> policy. Um, I'm, I'm going to recommend Gordon Hansen, economist at UC San Diego, as her uh, pick. No, I, I will say, <laughs> as a news consumer... Boy, do I hope she picks Elizabeth Warren. That's just going to be a fun few months. Like it is a great story. Yeah, yeah, it has been such a delight watching Elizabeth Warren and Donald Trump go at it, and you know Warren doing very, very well in that fight. May I also just say that two ladies on a ticket is cool. I mean, it just is. I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican on either side. It's like an interesting thing, and it's still strange that we live in a world where that would just be like way too much estrogen. Right. Right. I mean, so I'm I think I think I'm very much a skeptic of the Warren choice just for a couple of reasons. You you know, Rachel, that it's not clear that those two get along especially well. And I really think that for the modern vice president, it's very important that they understand each other as partners because the vice president will, for the most part, I think a Democratic vice president will be for the most part an advocate and an enforcer and a negotiator for the president. So they have to be willing to sort of subordinate their own interests and their own desires for the sake of advancing that of the president's. And Adam, I think you touched on something that makes the Warren choice a little dangerous, which is that if she chooses Warren, the narrative in the fall may not be Clinton-Trump. It may be Warren versus Trump. It may be Elizabeth Warren may end up overshadowing Clinton because she is more well-liked, because she has this fervent following in the Democratic Party. She ends up maybe being the focal point of the election in a way that she shouldn't for the functioning of an administration. That just doesn't help. I'd also add that I'm not sure what's in it for Warren, who has this independent power base, who has her Senate seat as long as she wants it, who has the power and sort of moral authority almost to force a presidential administration to change course. Um, And you can be a very effective advocate for her causes from the Senate in a way that I'm not sure is true of her as vice president. I think she'd be able to wield different kinds of power as vice president, but I'm not sure they'd be as effective and as needed as the kind she would wield in the Senate. And this would this would prompt my parenthetical that people really underestimate the, the amount of power and influence even a House rep can have if they're dedicated and they have the right network of connections. Yeah, I have I have sort of two questions. One for Hillary Clinton is if if it now is looking increasingly likely that she takes this thing in a walk, does that give her some license to make a bold, interesting choice? And I, I don't know what that would mean for her, whether that means let's have two women. You know, Tim Kaine to me seems like a boring, safe choice, like a focus grouped choice, not a like 
oh, yes, this is exciting. So from her standpoint, I don't think she wants Elizabeth Warren necessarily stealing that spotlight, but maybe there's another choice that would be kind of bold and exciting. What about Cory Booker? Have to worry. What, did you even like say Corey his Booker name at the top? Would be yeah. interesting. No, I didn't say Cory Booker at the top. I don't think, I, I don't, I, I, I'm sure he's being considered. I think his big weakness is that he is a bit too close to Wall Street. I mean, I think that's, I think it, it that actually may weigh her down in a way. Um, if Bernie Sanders had never run, Cory Booker would be perfect, mm. but um, it reinforces the current narrative out there about her and the Sanders message against her. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's why, like, Elizabeth Warren is more possible because, you know, Wall Street has already sent warning shots um, through us, the media, to say, you know, hey, Hillary, we're leaning towards you now. We're not that big on Trump. But if you pick Warren, we're going to go all in on him. But maybe she doesn't need need that. Maybe she's OK without the Wall Street money. For Warren, I totally agree with you. And I should say in the interest of full disclosure, I famously had a fight with her like five years ago, that oh or seven God, years ago, that really bothered a lot of people. <laughs> but since then, we have become, I think I can say friends. I mean, I are friendly, certainly. We, we, we've uh, spent, spent a decent amount of time together over the last year. And, 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 um, and she is, uh, you know, as someone who went from having the kind of cliche of her as like just a firebrand, you know, she has deep, profound thoughts about re- shaping the American economy in ways that Wall Street hates, but I'd say a lot of sensible finance people would not find so offensive, would actually find extremely helpful. And I would just think next year, if she's in the Senate, that's going to be a fun year to be a progressive Democrat in the U.S. Senate. You really get to do a lot in the next two years in the Senate. And I could see that, like, that's got to be seductive. And just lastly, I'm just curious, Jamel, your thoughts on Julian Castro. Does he just not have, I don't know what, the, the experience? I mean, he has experience, but he he doesn't seem to be kind of catching fire in any interesting way. Right. So I think his virtues, and I, I believe Vox.com's Matt Iglesias wrote this in a story, and I thought it was a really good point. Castro's virtue, virtues is, is that he very, he's very skilled at skating where the puck is going to be in democratic politics. He sort of knows where, where he should end up. And so he would be in the White House or in the administration a reliable mainstream liberal. He, he's not going to excite sort of Bernie Sanders supporters. He's not going to alienate them either. Um, although his, I think there is some things in his background with regards to sort of like how he's handled mortgage settlements at HUD that might be a little harmful to him, but that's a little bit in the weeds. I think for the typical person, he's not going to really alienate them. I think if he had served as a senator at some point, if he had uh, served as even like lieutenant governor somewhere, I think he'd be a really great choice. But I feel like I'm a little traditionalist in this regard. I really think that like the first option, the first goal for a president choosing a running mate should be someone who could actually be president. It's important to choose someone who could take over um, at a moment's notice. And I'm just not certain that Castro is that person. I think sort of from the progressive left, the the person who they think maybe hits some of the same bases as Castro is um, of Hispanic descent, um, has sort of an inspiring background, uh, but has more experience, at least more experience in the business of government, is the current Secretary of Labor, Tom Perez, who was previously the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights. He is well known as a you know strong bureaucratic figure, um, is very good on the stump, has been a very fierce advocate for Clinton, and and the chatter I've heard among you know progressive types is that he is sort of their ideal choice for splitting the difference between you know Castro and Warren. I think if there's any like truly dark horse option in all of this, it is Al Franken. 
Oh um, yeah, Al Franken. Who I forgot his name was in the mix. <laughs> he split. I mean, he splits the difference between like Kane and Warren, right? That like he is, he is appears to be a safe choice liberal senator from Minnesota, um, but has Warren's fieriness is very well liked among progressives. Um, would be a surprising choice. Would I think kind of energize people, but wouldn't seem like a hail mary choice, um, which I think. I think Clinton does have an interest in kind of projecting, you know, stability and normalcy against Trump. And so choosing someone who would make a splash might not be the best option. The last story I read on all of this is that Kane really is at the top of the list. But I think Franken stance is sort of like the the version of a Kane type pick that would be uh, more exciting to the left. And I think I really think it all and depends. And to media consumers. Right. And I to mean, media consumers. I mean, come on. Consumers. This is the age of entertainment. This is the age of the yeah. entertainment politicians. It would be a lot of so clicks. fit right in. For websites like Jim- Slate.com. Now, Jamel, I you you know this much better than I, but I always hear VPs really don't matter. That it's much oversold. It it is very oversold. I think at most a uh, VP will have a home state effect of about two points on average. If there were a Georgia statewide Democrat or a Arizona statewide Democrat, you might pick them. Virginia is the closest thing, but even Virginia is almost I wouldn't say reliably blue, but it's getting there. Um so that there's I mean, it looks like the battleground states Pennsylvania right now. Is so Pennsylvania there. might be a place where you'd pick a veep, but the the 2010 and 2014 midterms have really wiped out the Democratic bench um, on the state level, and so there's the pickings are pretty slim because of that fact. Let's face it; that any projection we make is going to be wrong. I feel yes, like the veep yes. stakes is a game you never win. You really should not <laughs> listen to journalists about politics anymore. I mean, of course you should but read nobody me. Nobody checks. But Let's like, just, you should... no, what people remember is your certainty. That's what people remember, <laughs> even if it's wrong. But here, I'm going to come out and say it. There is absolutely no question. Take it to the bank. Chuck Schumer's the VP. Chuck. He's and they're going to win by eight points across the country, and she's okay. finally going to deliver New York as a blue state. Okay. You you heard it, Gabfest listeners. Um, yeah. Talk about that with your friends, uh, and try to make everyone forget that you said it when it's wrong. <laughs> it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver i kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out chumba casino at chumbacasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus let's get to our cocktail chatter now uh it is a nice warm evening in washington dc not today today it's rainy but let's imagine that it's a warm evening in in dc you're on one of the city's many rooftop bars you are drinking you are talking what will you be chattering about rachel oh my god i'm just so into that scene because i have two young kids and i can't remember the last time i was at like a dc rooftop bar (laughs) but yes let's pursue that fantasy um i think i would be talking about how uh, reality has ruined reality television for me. And this is what I mean. Um, I will out myself as a watcher of The Bachelor. And it is something, whatever, I don't want to sit here and justify it. I enjoy it. It's a thing. My husband and I watch it. I, we text with our friends during it. We have Bachelor watching parties, whatever, period. However, 
A couple weeks ago, I did this interview with this awesome lady. Her name is Sarah Gertrude Shapiro, and she is the creator of a new show on Lifetime. Yes, Lifetime. It is called Unreal, and it's, I mean, it's a drama. It's a fictionalized drama, but it's based on The Bachelor. And in the show Unreal, the reality show is called Everlasting, and it is all the stuff you suspect happens behind the scenes at The Bachelor, but they just plumb all that misery. I mean, the manipulation of the contestants is crazy off the charts, and people really are as hideous as you think they are. And this isn't just born out of someone's imagination. This woman, Sarah Shapiro, was a producer on The Bachelor. She had this epiphany. She had this revelation one day and she just woke up and realized that she didn't like who she was working on that show because of how it manipulates people emotionally. And so she bailed. And now she's created this really entertaining, super smart show called Unreal. And now I can't watch The Bachelor anymore because I know too much about what's really happening. And I was kind of blissfully in denial before. <sighs> <laughs> Adam, what are you chattering about? Yeah, I also like Unreal. It is very fun. I am chattering, chatting about the ongoing delight of having a four-year-old and, and being able to do all these things that I sort of probably could have done at any point, but just never got around to it. I bought a microscope this week, <laughs> and um, I somehow didn't occur to me that a human being can just go online and order a microscope and a bunch of slides. And just sitting with my four-year-old and... Zooming in and and seeing each individual hair on the head of a fly and seeing the body parts of an ant and trying to explain to him what it means when we're looking at human connective tissue and why there's these blood vessels. It's just like, it's so fun. It is awesome. The indulging of my inner school-age nerd is a particular delight. You know, I, I neither have children nor... Um, uh, a microscope? nor a microscope, nor do I watch very much TV uh, outside of a handful of things. But I do buy lots of cameras. It's like my thing. And I recently bought a camera that is uh, one of the few instant cameras that they still make. Like a Polaroid? Like, oh. like a Polaroid, but it's not made by Polaroid. Polaroid makes this new one, but it really is just a digital camera with a printer built in. This one actually you put in a film cartridge and you, you get film out of it. So I have an instant camera um, and it's really great. Uh, the photos are not like the most sharp or detailed things you'll find in the world, but it's really fun and almost magical to be able to see it develop in person. And they're fun to use if you I'm, – I'm a weirdo, and if I see someone interesting on the street and I have a camera with me, which I, I usually do, um, I want to take their picture. And so it, it's a really great icebreaker for approaching a stranger <laughs> and saying, hey. Wait, what? I, I just took your picture? Yeah, well, it's more like it's more like, hey, uh, can I take a can I take a picture for you? And you take 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 their picture with this uh, instant camera, and you give it to them, and you're like, hey, can I oh. also take a picture with this other camera, which is film, so you can't actually see the result, um, but here you have an approximation of what it might look like. Wait, I love that because taking a picture is inherently this this so-called selfish thing, right? You're taking something from someone, but you are giving the photo to the person. Exactly. That's nice. yeah. yeah. So this might. And then this you might. keep a digital copy. Well, I, I keep I keep uh, I, I shoot a lot of my amateur stuff on film, um, so I have you know I have the negative from the uh, from the photo I took for myself. That's awesome. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. 
Andy Bowers, the Chief Content Officer for Panoply. The Slate Political Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest with lots of links for the things we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Check out at GabFest our Twitter feed and our email address is GabFest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you are there. If you like the show, subscribing, commenting, and rating really helps us. Search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store. For Adam Davidson and Rachel Martin, I'm Jamal Bowie. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>